first Sunday of the year. God is good. And um, we acknowledge that particularly because we realize that tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. <clears throat> and so it's important that we give ourselves to seek the Lord. Because the Bible says that we are to seek him while he may be found. Such a blessing to see everyone. This week we've been having a week of prayer and fasting. And um, it's been a real challenging and yet encouraging time. And it's been challenging for many, even just on the basis of having to fast from social media and, and media in and of itself. And it, it goes to show just how far the, the tentacles of technology have gone into our souls. Uh, matrix indeed. Um, and for some, that was actually harder than fasting from food. And yet we recognize that it's a sign of the times. It's a symptom of our age. Those notifications come in and we feel compelled. Now, I'm, if you're like me, then you, you experience the compulsion of not liking any kind of red numbers on your icons. Like, even if you just have to kind of like look at it and get it, just open and close it, but you just don't want any red numbers left. It plagues you. Whether it be Insta, Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook, it can seem to, at times, drive us to distraction. And the truth be told, it's actually designed to be that way. There is a certain addictive nature to social media that causes us to get what they call a, an, an addictive feedback loop. Um, we see a notification, we have to respond to it um, because it suggests that we are being um, asked for our attention. There can be a sense of importance, there can be a sense of gratification in that, regardless of what the notification pertains to. We're just concerned with the fact that it's about us in some way or another. It's connected to us. It's for our attention. And in this, people have become literally addicted, um, even to the point of losing themselves in the world of social media. And I remember speaking to a friend who's a psychologist about a young person that he was speaking to, and in the conversation, he kind of explained how mystified he was when he was supposed to meet with this young person and they didn't turn up. And yet he could see but from social media that they were very alive and well and active. <laughs> and um, once he kind of caught up with the person, 
he was like, so, okay, so what happened? Um, we were supposed to meet, and there was like, oh, I couldn't. And he was like, but I saw you on social media. Um, that wasn't me. Literally. And there was this kind of disassociation of, of personality that this individual, this young person, was so convinced that it wasn't them, and with absolute confidence and unwavering conviction, said, it wasn't me. And it was like, well, so was your account hacked? Did somebody kind of like, no? And it was, I mean, it was a big, big conversation. So it wasn't just like a, the odd picture or comment or whatever. And, you know, he, he kind of talked about the fact that it was so sad to see the way that this young person was just lost to the world of social media, um, even to the extent of disassociating themselves from the person who is on social media, engaging. And I say all of that to say that there is a war going on. And it is a war, a battle for the human soul. And that example is just a demonstration of how, with the changing in times, the, the battle has changed its appearance or changed its form. I mean, once upon a time, I remember my grand saying, don't sit down in front of the telly so much, you'll get square eyes. And it was just a metaphor for being consumed or absorbed by TV. Um, TV isn't such a great problem for many of the younger generation. For some of us, we still can't go to sleep without the TV on, right? Let's just admit it. But how I associate this with the battle for the soul is that there is a battle for the soul, and it is fought in the realm of the mind. And through all of these means and mediums, our minds are under constant attack. There is a constant onslaught against us for control of our minds. I watched a uh, video yesterday. Some of you may have heard of this activist group called Anonymous. And they post videos um, on social media wearing a kind of um, mask. Uh, it's, it's not even a clown mask, but it, it's kind of got like a joker-type smile and, and slit eyes. And they kind of basically exercise online activism against different organizations, governments, whoever they choose to take you know, issue with and expose. And their quest is that for truth. And there's an, uh, a post that they've made recently about just Facebook and Instagram and individuals who were in the founding team of those companies admitting not only their guilt for the way in which those companies have been developed, with, and their guilt was because the companies knowingly and intentionally developed their systems in such a way that it would manipulate the user, that it would create an addictive experience, intentionally. And yet, in addition to their guilt is the concern for where the world is going because of the fact that in all of our technological engagement, 
we are offering our souls to corporations, to, to organizations, and to governments. They are collecting data. I mean, even things that you might seem insignificant and, and completely irrelevant and just meaningless. You open an app, you open a page, you open a, a, a website, you, you use an app. All of, all of our lives are being recorded and analyzed and processed in order that people might be able to have more of a hold, more of an impact, more of an influence on us and our lives so that fundamentally they can control us. So the phrase that's being used is, is big data. And it's, they talked about petabytes. I don't even know what a petabyte is. But it's more than a gigabyte or a terabyte um, in, in excess. And they talk about petabytes of data on individuals being harvested and collected constantly and analyzed and patterns being identified in order that they can predict. I was having a conversation with um, Jason um, who's in um, recovery from his operation. And um, he said, you know, he heard that if you like have a smartphone, like an iPhone or whatever, um, and you are talking about a, 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 a subject, like say you talk about fishing, and you just talk about fishing and fishing, you know, your iPhone's there and it's just in standby mode, um, that actually it's picking up your conversation. So when you go onto your um, web page browser or whatever now, the advertisements that you begin to see are targeting towards fishing. That's mad. Does that not? You see that you see the level to which the tentacles are reaching into our souls. So I say this to say, look, there is a real war of the worlds because a person who is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. We have entered into a different world. We are, we are under different authority. We are under new ownership. And yet we still have to deal with the world with which we're familiar and even ourselves as we interact with the world and one another. And yet so many of us are not seeing the reality of that battle. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. It's a necessary one. 
And so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand and respond helpfully to this today. Father God, as we come before you, we recognize that <sighs> the conspiracy theorists are right. There is a hidden agenda. There are secret societies. And yet, Lord, we know that the, the daddy of them all is the devil and his fallen angels. And we recognize that he is at work actively and consistently. And he is our adversary to those who are in Christ Jesus and to those who would be in Christ Jesus. He is actively opposed. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to be wise, to be understanding, to be open-hearted and open-minded as we seek your face, as we seek your grace, Lord, as we seek your strength. Because we cannot fight this battle in our own strength. We cannot fight this war according to our own ideas and strategies. Help us, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 6 is rounding up his letter to the Ephesians. And Ephesus was a, known as the second city of Rome, of the Roman Empire, second to Rome. It was a very cosmopolitan, very decadent city. And as Paul was writing to this group of people that he had deep relationship with, we read in Acts 20 that, there was weeping on the beach as Paul was getting ready to leave Ephesus and leave the elders there. And as he, as he exhorted them to, to watch over the flock of God that the Holy Spirit had made them overseers of. Because people would come in unawares and seek to bring division uh, from the truth. Paul was invested in the church of Ephesus with all of his heart. And in his letter, he has, from the outset, in the first three chapters, clarified this is what God has done in Christ Jesus. He has chosen a people whom you are one of to be his people according to the, his foreknowledge. And he has redeemed by the blood of Christ and he has sealed with the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. This is what he has done to the praise of his glorious grace. Nobody twisted his arm. He was not bound by anyone or obligated by anyone. And furthermore, he should never have done it. Really, what he should give to people is what we deserve. Judgment. That's what we deserve. And yet God in his good grace said, even though you are indicted and guilty on death row before the divine court of judgment, I would give my son for you to die in your place, to take the penalty 
that you ought to pay in order that you can be free and have his life. And so those who were afar, God has brought near Ephesians 2 in making us one people in Christ Jesus. And he has done this by his grace, through faith, to the praise of his glorious grace. And he has made us a people who are a, a temple, metaphorically speaking. Looking back at the Old Testament and the, the picture that was painted through God meeting with his people in the place of the temple. And now God's people are the temple. And we meet with God because we're in Christ. And Christ is in us. And as a temple, we reveal Christ to one another as we stand in unity one with another. Because as chapter 3 says, God's spirit is present in power within us. To do even more than we could ask or think to the glory of Christ. And so God has done a deep work and a thorough work to the extent that he would even use the church to show off to the angels this mystery hidden from the ages now revealed in Christ Jesus that we've been redeemed by God and brought into family relationship with him that God would be family with man doesn't make sense and yet he's done it And such is his love for us, chapter 5, that he has committed himself to us as a groom to a bride. And such is his love for his bride that he gave himself for us, the bride, his church. And we look forward to the consummation of that union when he returns, having gone to prepare a place for his bride. And yet in the meantime, we're called to stand as an army, chapter 6. And we're to fight this good fight. And we're to do so, not in our own strength, but being strong in the Lord. And that basically means that we submit to all that God has done. And we embrace the grace of God that is given in Christ Jesus. That we believe that grace has been given. And by means of it, we're able to stand and do God's will. And that's basically what is expressed in the whole armor of God. When it talks about putting on the whole arm of God. Every element, every item mentioned in the armor of God is basically speaking of Christ. Christ is our helmet of salvation. He is our belt of truth because he is the truth. He is the shoes concerning the good news that we wear on our feet. He is our breastplate of righteousness because he is our righteousness. He is our faith, the author and finisher thereof, by which we quench the fiery darts of the devil. 
It's all about Jesus. I remember growing up in the Lord and hearing that, you know, every morning when you get up, you've got to put on the whole armor of God and you've got to stand by your bed and you've got to put on your shoes and put on your girdle and put on your breastplate and say, Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm putting on the armor of God today. Some of us need kind of active engagement in order to really try and kind of get in the frame of mind. But that's not a necessity. I was quite relieved to learn later on in life because it was a bit hard trying to keep that up. <laughs> you know, these little legalisms that really can cause a stress to our hearts and our lives. <laughs> but it's about knowing who you are in Christ. I'm not going to dwell on the armor today. and it's, it's, We've got a session in the archives where I talk about that on, on our podcast archive. But I just want us to think about the reality of this war and the battlefield upon which it's fought. In verse 11 it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil, in case we didn't know, is a liar, a thief, a murderer, and destroyer. He has no love for you. The devil does not know mercy. He does not know compassion. He does not know kindness. The devil has pure and unadulterated unadulterated hatred for you. And... In every avenue of life, the devil is actively opposed to you. Sometimes, you know, people have kind of taken the devil as just a joke. They say, oh, um, the, the, the greatest thing that the devil ever done was to try and convince people that he doesn't exist. And on one extreme, even amongst Christians, there are those who kind of disregard Satan altogether for one reason or another. Or then there are those who magnify Satan and give him more credit and power than is really due to his name. But we do know that he's real, that he is strategic in his efforts to undermine Rob from us, steal from us, even murder us. And it's in the knowledge of this that we recognize that we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's important because so often, even in our experience as the church, we experience issues, we experience even repetitive issues, and we can lose sight of the fact that actually we have an adversary who is trying to poison the pot. I want to remind us today that we don't fight against flesh and blood. You know, one of the things that we've really been focusing on during this season of prayer and fasting is the fact that 
as a church, we need to grow in maturity, especially as it relates to relationship with one another. Point blank. Our vision as a church is to be a healthy church. We've got a long way to go. Our vision as a church is to be equipped to disciple. We've got a long way to go. It's to be faithful on mission. Praise God, we're not doing too bad, but we've still got a long way to go. And the reality is that it starts with us and how we engage and interact with and basically love one another. And we have to appreciate that truly there are rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil that are at work in this world and seeking even to interfere in our lives in very real ways. Now, before we kind of begin to break that down a little bit, I would want to first of all highlight and emphasize that Satan is fighting a battle that he knows he has lost. The devil has been defeated. He has been defeated. You remember those days when you used to like, be really scared reading the book of Revelation? I'm still scared. But you know, the basic plot of the story is that we win at the end. Praise be to God. So once you step onto the winning side and you understand that, it's like it might be a bit kind of sketchy, but you'd act, you know that we've won at the end. That's the end of the, that's like spoiler alert. We win. Jesus has overcome Satan. Jesus said in Luke 11, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now, just looking at that, the context is that Jesus had just delivered a, a mute person from demon possession. And having been delivered of that demon, that, that young person was then able to speak. And so it was clearly and evidently uh, a manifestation of the power of God. To the point where people were criticizing Jesus saying, nah, we don't, furthermore, you're not from God, you're of the devil. You've done that by the power of Satan. And Jesus was like, hold on a second, a house divided against itself can't stand. Would, would Satan... Cast out demons by the power of Satan, his own, his own troops, his own family, his own people. Doesn't make sense. And then he says this. And, you know, in times past, I always read this as the power of the devil over humanity. So, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, the devil, comes and attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. I always kind of read that as the devil coming. I mean, Jesus has just delivered this child from 
um, demon possession. And so is he speaking about the process by which he was possessed by the demon? And then it dawned on me, actually, you know what? Jesus is speaking about himself. The devil is called the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 tells us that the whole world is under the influence and power of Satan. They're already under his control. When Adam ate of the fruit, he conceded authority to Satan because he had disobeyed God. So the devil's already running things. And if you are not in Christ and your life is not submitted to Jesus and you have not surrendered your heart to the Lord, you are under the power of Satan. And yet Jesus came to set the captives free. Jesus is the stronger one who came and attacked the enemy and overcame him and took away his armor and divided his spoil. And look at how we done it. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So that which the devil had against us, Jesus came and said, Satan's got nothing on me. Like, what? Got nothing on me. Can't, can't say nothing to me. Can't do nothing to me. Because he was without sin. That's what the devil had over us. Until Christ came and granted forgiveness of all of our trespasses. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He had legal right over those in sin. Yet Jesus set that aside, nailing it to the cross. I have a um, New Year's resolution. Just one. No more parking tickets. <laughs> Just one. I want to go through the whole year. No parking tickets. Not one. The Lord help me. <laughs> Judith says amen. <laughs> She's tired of them. And you know when you just see that offense recorded against you? Even when you make the appeal and they just brush it aside like... They don't even need to listen to you. Why did they even give you the opportunity? Anyway, look, you know what? <laughs> Can you imagine you got that, that parking ticket and you're loath to pay it? And yet, you just get the notification, debt cancelled, paid in full. I mean, we had a parking ticket that was... It was cosmological, astronomical, in terms of our offense against God. And yet Jesus came, debt paid, paid in full, debt cancelled. Praise be to God. Nailed to the cross was that debt. And yet in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
You see, Jesus has conquered Satan. He has executed the victory. And all who are in Christ stand as freed people, no longer under the power and dominion of the devil. We have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Praise be to God. Now, does this mean that we have no more struggles, no more issues with the kingdom of darkness? Of course we do. And the Apostle Paul addresses that and identifies the root and source of it. In Ephesians 4, two chapters before 6, he says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Gentiles, speaking of those who are apart from God, um, not just ethnically, but also ethically. Those who are immoral and not living according to God's plans and purposes. Don't be like them. Paul had to say this because they were being like them. And we all know the reality of that in our own hearts and lives. When we're confronted with our own sinfulness in our times of disobedience. And yet as a loving father, God is urging us, instructing us, do not be like the Gentiles. Who do what? In, they're in the futility of their minds. Note that. The futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. You see all these terms that relate to the mind? The understanding? Due to the hardness of their hearts. This is why, as humans, we need God to intervene in our lives. We need God. If it were not for God's intervention, we would not know him. We would not have relationship with him. Because we are sinful by nature. I have a cat. And even my cat is sinful by nature. And so, if I leave the kitchen door open, as much as the cat knows not to jump on the counter, the cat will find himself on the counter. Really. And the thing is, he knows he's wrong because as soon as I step into the kitchen and I see the cat on the counter, he's like a cartoon, <laughs> jumping off the and running. Now, what can I do? It's my fault for leaving the kitchen door open, isn't it? It's not his fault for jumping on the counter. It's in his nature. He's going to do what cats do. Such are humans. And we are inherently rebellious against God. Because in our own hearts and in our own minds, we see ourselves as God. That God exists for us, not for him. Not us for him. God is our genie like in Aladdin. And so God has just exists to give me a happy life and, and make everything cool for me. That's the height of rebellion. Because we're not recognizing God's sovereign greatness. That he is the almighty. 
God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him, as we ought to. And yet our nature is to rebel against that reality. And so there's a hardness of heart that requires God to intervene, which he does by his spirit and by means of the gospel. And yet it goes on to say, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now remember, Paul is speaking to Christians and saying, don't be like this. I.e., you're being like this, but you ought not to be. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And the reality is that we see this type of um, statement from Paul on numerous occasions indicating the fact that it's not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly a Christian. Just because you profess that, that doesn't make it so. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, many will come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do mighty works in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out spirits? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you worker of sin, you practice, practicer of lawlessness. Go away from me. Why? Because I never knew you. Never. As in, you thought you knew me, but me and you never had no relationship. Now, we understand that their, their wrong was that they thought that they were right and accepted by God because of their works. What was their defense before Jesus? Didn't we do, didn't we do, didn't we do, didn't we do? We're not saved by the things that we do. We're not saved by our religious activity. You're not a Christian because you come to church. Amen. 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 The, the kids are with us today. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. You're not a Christian because you come to church. You are a Christian because you have admitted your guilt before God. You have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received from him life eternal. Submitting to him as Lord. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus. Nowhere else. Not in anyone else or in any other ideology. It's in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put that off. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Where? In the spirit of your minds. You see... In Romans 12, verse 2, many of us will be familiar with the verse that says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so that's the real battlefield. It's the realm of the mind. It's no wonder that by means of technology, the enemy seeks to get his tentacles into us. 
trying to influence and manipulate our minds. But it's through the renewing of our minds that we become different people, that we become transformed. So be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so there's this clear sense that unlike the world who are trying to be something that they're not through self-help, we as believers are called to be what we truly are. God has made us new in Christ Jesus. We are created after the likeness of God. So we didn't do it. We were created A new creation, by the Holy Spirit's power, we regenerate. There is a renewal that takes place within the heart of the person who has come into relationship with God. But that renewal needs to work its way out. And so we're called to be who we are, not who we're not. Righteous and holy. But the means by which that is achieved is through the renewing of our minds. Now, I want to take just a minute to kind of think about these verses here. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 2 to 6. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. The Apostle Paul speaking again. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Again, speaking to the Corinthians, acknowledging the reality of this war that we are in as believers. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Just a reminder again. People of God. Let's not lose sight of the fact that we have an enemy. And we have an enemy who would seek to involve himself, and as my grand would say, inveigle himself in the affairs of the saints. If you know, you know. <laughs> inveigle, Lisa. You understand? It's, it's one of them Jamaican terms that doesn't have a direct translation. It just it is what it sounds like. <laughs> we have an enemy. And when you kind of think about some of the tough relationships that you feel like you've been enduring, you've been tolerating throughout the course of this past year, and you know, you stand at the, 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 the entrance to a new year and you're just like, all right, Where's this change going to come? Is this even going to change? Is there even any point trying to like, have a go at really working at this? Because people are long. They're just hard work. Remember that we have an enemy and the weapons of our warfare are not physical. They're not merely human. That's not where the battle is won. 
It's not one with our forceful words or our ignorance or any other strategy that we will employ to try and, you know, cope or work through the situation. No, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. To destroy, obliterate, to rid completely. Be encouraged. God has given grace to rid our lives of strongholds. Amen. Paul goes on to say, we destroy arguments. Notice where it's indicating the issues lie. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So arguments, opinion, knowledge and thoughts are the issues that are dealt with. So, it's all about our spiritual state of mental health. Now, we all have mental health issues. People misuse that term. People use mental health issues to indicate negative experiences. We all have physical health issues. Some are serious, some are not. Some of us need to get in the gym and do some exercise, lower our cholesterol, burn some calories. It's a physical health issue. We need to do more stretching, etc. Some of us are receiving medical treatment. Varied degrees of physical health issues. We all have mental health issues, just to varied degrees. Sometimes we feel low, have low mood. Sometimes we feel joyous. Sometimes we, be, we feel happy about the wrong things. <laughs> Varied degrees. Mental health is just an overarching term for the description of what's going on in our minds. And yet... And, you know, and, and I emphasize that as a side note, just to, you know, we need to dismiss and abolish the stigma associated with mental health, especially in the church. Especially in the church. Because people are either dismissive of it as if Christians don't have mental health issues of any kind, or they um, over-spiritualize it and call everything a demon. Neither is helpful. But we must be conscious and aware of our spiritual state of mental health. Spiritual state. And this is what Paul's talking about in these verses here. He's talking about the spiritual state of our mental health. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So there are these castles 
in our minds, these fortresses in our minds that are militating against God, that need to be removed, that need to be torn down, that need to be destroyed. And these are formed of arguments and opinions, knowledge or understanding and thoughts that are contrary to Christ. And so when we consider the construction of strongholds in our lives, we see that there is this process that takes place. And it's one that we experience from our formative years throughout our lives. And it's informed by things we're told. It's, it's informed by things we experience. And it begins to develop in layers, brick by brick. We have thoughts and feelings which become reasonings. They become principles that we begin to hold in heart. These principles then become more entrenched in that they become beliefs, convictions, and values. And collectively, they come together to form what is known as a, a worldview or an ideology, an outlook on life. It's like seeing the world through tinted colored glasses. Everything you see is influenced and affected by the tint of the lens. And so you have a perspective of life that consists and is made up of these ideas and these thoughts and these beliefs and these convictions that we accumulate over the years. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> I want you to think about Femi and Kerry. So, from childhood, Femi was told that he is a prince. He is wonderful, and he can do no wrong. And he was treated that way from childhood. Femi was affirmed even when he shouldn't have been. Even when he was genuinely in the wrong and teachers called him out, mum was there to give them a piece of her mind because never could her Femi be considered wrong. And so this idea became quite established to the point where it began to impact Femi's relationships with others. Because from Femi's point of view, he's basically a good guy. And so these problems that he has in his relationships are not his fault. I mean, the problems are real, but they're always as a result of someone else or some other circumstances that have led to these, these issues arising. And so for Femi, even on hearing the gospel, he was really quite unhappy to you know, have the idea of his life improved because he deserved it. I mean, God loves him. Wonderful. So does my mum. 
The whole prospect of life improvement sounded like a good deal, especially at Christ's expense. But the real stumbling block for Femi as it relates to the gospel is his inability to recognize his need for repentance. Because Femi can do no wrong. Femi is my prince. And so we see that these ideas become principles that become convictions and fundamentally are outworked in that way of life that impacts others. And so we see in that example how Femi's experience, based on his outlook, differs from the gospel because the Bible makes it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Parents, especially new parents, parents with real little ones, they're cute and I know they frustrate you sometimes, especially when they get to the terrible twos. And but you love your children and, and you only want the best for them. Please know and understand that the best for them includes them understanding as they grow that they are sinners. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you need to terrorize your children with the, the knowledge that they are, but help them to understand that they are in need of God's grace. And it feels even uncomfortable to hear that. How can you say my little baby looks so innocent, doesn't, doesn't know anything? is a sinner, born in sin, shaped in iniquity. <laughs> Some of you, it's a relief to hear that. <laughs> because the trouble that your children give you, you're just like, at least there's an explanation. <laughs> and there's hope. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. Praise be to God. Now, Kerry, on the other hand, I said Femi and Kerry, right? Kerry, on the other hand, is such that she grew up lacking approval and affirmation. She always worked hard, and all she longed for was for her dad to say, well done. It was never forthcoming. No matter how well, there was always that sense of not being good enough. Oh, you got a first. But were you the valedictorian honor student of your year? You're like, what? You mean I have to do more? This constant pursuit of approval to the point where in Kerry's relationships that led to dysfunction, that led to Kerry overextending herself in order to please people, feeling as though that's what God required of her. And yet we see that that is something that is at odds with the gospel. 
Because the Bible makes it clear that those in Christ have been graciously received and accepted by God among his beloved. And because of Jesus, there is no need now to seek God's approval because his approval and his love has been set upon you. Ah, I wonder if I'm going to find it. I was reminded of a beautiful scripture this week. And um, it's in Jeremiah. What is the verse again? It's Jeremiah 34. Somebody might be able to help me. And it's... um. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Anyone see that? Thirty-one three. Thank you, my brother. My man didn't even have the Bible in hand when he said that. <laughs> Jeremiah thirty-one three. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you. With an everlasting love. Past tense, you know. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so, Kerry is able to experience freedom from destructive relationships. Where she's open to manipulation and abuse because of constantly needing the approval of others. And yet these are examples of how ideas and experiences, and you know, it could be all kinds of ideas. It could be evolution, and you sit down in a class, and you hear this information, and it makes sense to you, and everybody else seems to be in agreement with it. And so therefore, you're like, how can it be wrong? And so then you wrestle with the notion of God creating because it's an uncommon, unpopular idea. Thoughts and feelings. <clears throat> Reasonings, beliefs, worldview. These are the places in which strongholds lie. And it's so important that we recognize this, evaluate this, and take action concerning it. Because it is in that that we see change. And change is expected. Even Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You see, as we deal with these things and as we submit them to Christ, the fruit of, of his grace will manifest in our lives. You may be wrestling and have been wrestling with just real character flaws and ongoing issues just within yourself, let alone anyone else. Feeling like, can I ever change? God says yes. He will bring about that change in you. And so what to do? 
How do we see the destruction of strongholds? Well, we have to pray. And like the psalmist say, Lord, search me and know me. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. We have to ingest the word of God. Because it's through the light of the word that we are going to see ourselves more clearly. And we're going to see those areas of our hearts and lives that need to be submitted to God. And even in that, we need to do that with a teachable heart. We need to be willing to submit our lives to the word of God. There isn't any negotiation. It's God's way or no way. We must be open to correction. This is why God places his people in the family of God. You know and I know that among our family, however big or small our family is, there are things that we may hear from them that we don't like to hear. But because they're family, and generally speaking, we understand it's coming from a place of love, they mean the best, even if it's harsh, we will be open to receive it. We will be more readily willing to, uh, to accept it from a family member than we might someone else who doesn't really know us. And we have no confidence who cares. And this is what it means to be in the family of God. There are certain times when we have to talk to one another in love, speaking the truth. And yet that is only as effective as the willingness to receive it. We must put our faith in the grace of God and recognize that any change, any adjustment, any resolve, any healing is going to take place by God's grace. And then we must apply that truth to our hearts and lives. We must own it for ourselves. So often it's easier for us to own truth for others, but not for ourselves. Someone gets in a situation and we're there with a word of encouragement and, you know, God loves you, you know, don't beat yourself up. Christ died for you. And he's faithful to, to forgive our, our unrighteousness and cleanse us of our sin. Be encouraged. Let me pray with you. And yet when it comes to ourself, we find it hard to accept. We must believe and apply it to our own hearts. The gospel is for you. I remind you of the growth equation that I once shared. The information of God's word plus the revelation that comes by the spirit of the Lord illuminating his word to our hearts. Over application, taking that and applying it results in transformation. And this is what these previous verses have been telling us. And so, be encouraged. God is good. And despite the fact that we do have an adversary, despite the fact that there are powers and principalities, I was speaking with Tolu, just come back from New Zealand, and just asking her how it's been coming home, and just her feeling the difference being back in London. And although some people take these principles to an extreme, even to the extreme of taking scripture out of context, as I once did, 
thinking that, well, you know what? There are principalities, there are demons over certain places, and all we have to do is bind them. There are demons of, I remember binding demons over Soho, expecting that that was going to finish the job and rid, rid the place of all of its sinfulness. Maybe I just need to stay like this then. Uh, but that was the misappropriation of the word. That was taking the word out of its context and walking in a false doctrine. You see, Jesus has defeated the enemy. And as we are in Christ, walking in submission to his word, just like Joshua, when God said to him, you know what, every, every part of the land that your foot will tread on is holy ground. This is us in Christ Jesus. That's Joshua, Yeshua, was a type of Christ. And Christ has conquered. And in him, we walk in his victory. Wherever we go. And there will be a time when there will be no more Soho and no more Frontline in Brixton or Frontline in Peckham. And there will be no more trap houses and there will be no more gangsters in government. There, there will be a time when there's none of this. Because Jesus will come and consummate the work that he has started. He will complete, finish the job. And so we have that to look forward to. But in the meantime, we recognize, yes, there are, you go to certain locations and you recognize that there's just a different vibe there. And it's because those ideas and those thoughts and those beliefs have developed a culture contrary to Christ that is, is tangible. And so the answer is the gospel and the declaration of the gospel and the living of the gospel. And this is what Paul goes on to highlight in chapter 10, that it's about the gospel. And so... I invite you to stand with me as I ask the team to come. We do not fight against flesh and blood. And uh, maybe you're here today and you recognize that there are strongholds in your life that you've been experiencing. Behaviors that you can't even rationally explain. Behaviors that just on an emotional level you feel are compulsive. Even those deep, deep issues the Lord, through the power of his spirit, has purpose to address and to deal with and to eradicate, to destroy from the lives of his people. It's really important that we take, we take that to heart. That one, we recognize there are strongholds that need to be destroyed. And two, we have confidence in Christ. That all things are possible through him.
And maybe there's just a stronghold of unbelief in your life that has had you in a place where you've not actually committed yourself to trust in Christ. You've not submitted to him. Again, I highlight, the Bible makes it clear that you are under the power of Satan. You do not have any defense against the devil in your own strength. You cannot beat him. He has been here since the beginning. Before humanity was placed on the planet, the devil was here. Trust me, he knows people. And this is why we need the armor of God. Because without it, we are naked and vulnerable and exposed to the devil. The armor of God is Jesus. Be clothed in Christ. That means admit your guilt before God. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins. That you might be forgiven and brought into right relationship. Brought into family with God. And that you would be protected by the Most High. Just living life how you want and leaving your Bible on, the, on your bedside isn't going to be the one. Submit your life to Christ and no newness of life today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious promises of Christ Jesus that you've granted to all who will believe. And Lord, I ask that you would show yourself strong in our lives, Lord. For so many of us, there are so many strongholds. We've been through so many experiences that, Lord, we, we, we don't even understand ourselves. But Lord, we know that you do. We're naked and open before you with whom we have to do. Lord, we're naked and open before you. You know our hearts. You know our frames. You know every corner of our hearts, Lord. You know those areas that need attention. Help us, Lord, I pray. As we submit our hearts to you, as we give ourselves to you, help us, Lord, I pray. That we would see transformation in our hearts and lives. Jesus, we look to you because you are the Savior. You are the Redeemer. And in you alone do we have hope. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.